1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, we see God slowly beginning to spread the gospel to Gentiles as well, and the church begins to spread outside of Judaism. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. The title of the message is The Best Church.
0: Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. Well, in going through the book of Acts, remember the theme of Acts is that Jesus is still working. He is still doing his thing, even though now it looks a little different. It's through the church, by the Spirit. And as we've been going through, we've been seeing that The initial call where the Lord had told the apostles, hey, you're going to be my witnesses, and it's not just going to be here in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, but it's going to branch out to Samaria in the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we saw that last week as the Gentiles there in Cornelius' house come to faith in Christ and are saved. And then the church hears the news and Peter explains what happens and they rejoice that God had granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. But despite Peter's experience with Cornelius, the church didn't all of a sudden just launch into Gentile missions. In fact, prior to this point, the only launching we've seen has been a persecution-induced launching of missions. The church really hadn't actively said, let's go out and tell people about the Lord outside of our boundaries. They were driven there by persecution. And so the majority of the church, even after the experience with Cornelius, continued as normal. It's a good thing God had other plans, (laughs) See, often there's a tendency to romanticize the scriptures, to ignore the flaws of God's servants or of the local churches we find in the scriptures. With a healthy understanding of them, we can see how God wants the church to be, to be the best church we can possibly be. But that right kind of church requires the right kind of Christians. And in these verses here at the end of chapter 11, there is so much that's right about the believers. And so it's my heart that we would learn from them that we might be the best church that God wants us to be. So Acts 11, will begin in verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Phenis and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So we're kind of backing up in time a little bit, getting a little context this is before the whole experience with Cornelius. And he explains that during that persecution of Peter, we know that Philip took the gospel to Samaria. We know that afterwards that the gospel went to other places in Judea and that Peter was checking up on them. But now we hear that the gospel also went north. It mentions here that those that were scattered, they went as far as Phenis, which would be modern-day Lebanon, there on the coast, the coastal cities. Cyprus, which was that large island off the coast of Israel where Barnabas had been from. And then it says all the way to Antioch as well. Now, Antioch is an interesting place. There were 16 Antiochs in the Middle East at this time, all built by the Syrian emperor Seleucus I in honor of his father Antiochus. So he named a lot of cities after dad. He really liked his dad, I guess. Well, this was the Syrian Antioch far to the north of Israel and Phenis. In ancient times, the population numbered half a million people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. It was the cosmopolitan center of trade, religion, and politics between Asia Minor and the Middle East. It had a massive Jewish population due to the fact that the Romans granted full citizenship rights to any Jew who had emigrated there. But it was also the home residence of many government dignitaries. Trajan, the emperor himself, visited there at one time. As such, it was a hotbed for gambling, chariot races, brothels, and exotic banquets. It was a city that desperately needed Jesus. And so as these people are fleeing persecution, they're preaching in Venice there in modern-day Lebanon. They go to the island of Cyprus where Barnabas was from, and then they finally bring the gospel to Antioch. But it mentions here preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. So again, these events that are being described here, they precede Peter's events with Cornelius. And so this was the common practice of the church. No one gave a thought to the Gentiles. But praise God, that's about to change. Verse 20, it says, Now some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spoke unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so we see here that some of these guys who came up this way They were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. Now, Cyrene, it may sound familiar to you because of the guy, remember Simon, the man from Cyrene who carried Jesus's cross, right? Sound familiar? Well, this is a North African city. It's located in modern day Libya It had a Jewish population of about 100,000 due to the fact that Ptolemy Soter forced some Jews to settle there around 300 B.C., These would have been those who had attended the synagogues in Jerusalem, the ones that Stephen was reaching out to, eventually complained about him and got him stoned. These guys who had gotten saved through Stephen and others' ministry, now they're bringing the gospel back to their homeland, bringing the gospel up here. And as they're moving that way, they come to Antioch. And as they're there... Something strikes them. Now, whether the thing with Cornelius had happened or not, we don't know by this time, but something strikes them. They said, you know, we're preaching the gospel, all these Jews, what about these Gentiles? Maybe God loves them too. And so we find out that a non-traditional church is founded here at Antioch for they were preaching the Lord Jesus. And I love that. They weren't preaching politics. They weren't even preaching church affiliation. They said, you need to be a part of Calvary Chapel. They didn't say that. They were preaching a person, and it was Jesus Christ, our Jesus. That's who they were sharing about. And look at what verse 21 says as they stepped out to do this crazy thing, to preach to the Gentiles, to share Jesus with them. Verse 21 says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Now, if you have a Bible that translates the word Grecians there in verse 20 as Hellenists, the reason why is very often that's who that indicates. However, Antioch was a Hellenistic Jewish city. Any Jews they'd be preaching to already would have been Hellenists. And it makes it very clear that they had been preaching unto the Jews only prior to this point. So the word Grecians here does not mean Hellenistic Jews, but it means Gentiles. And God's hand was with them in that task. We often use the phrase, could you give me a hand with that? That's exactly what the Lord did with these Christians there at Antioch. Now, this phrase that the hand of the Lord was with them is a common phrase in the Old Testament. It was used two ways. Up until King David's time, it was entirely negative. That's the only time you'll see it, referring to judgment. And God's hand was upon the Egyptians to destroy them. God's hand was upon the Amalekites to defeat them. But Once David comes around, from that point, it was also used to show God's power or favor on someone's life. Ezra is the one who probably made this phrase the most famous by saying that all the good that he did was because of the hand of the Lord, his God, upon him. May that be our testimony as well, amen? That God's hand is upon us, using us to reach out to others, granting us his power and his favor. And so it says there, that a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. And here we see those two elements of salvation, repentance, a change of mind away from what I used to believe, turning away, and faith, a belief, a new placing of trust in Jesus Christ. Well, verse 22, apparently Jerusalem had a good information system because things are always reaching them. Now, Antioch is a good 300 miles north of Jerusalem, So eventually news trickles down, and in verse 22 it says, Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. The the phrase there, go as far as, means go through the area as far as Antioch. This would be very similar to when they sent Peter and John to investigate what was going on with Philip in Samaria. Hey, we're hearing about these Samaritans getting saved. Oh no, what's going on now? Send Peter and John down. We got to verify, make sure this is the Lord. And it was the same thing here. Hey, we heard there's a non-traditional church that's been formed up in Antioch. And so they decided to send Barnabas, a Hellenistic Jew himself, up there to go check on things. Now, going all the way to Antioch would take him through Phoenicia and much of the Syrian province. Like I said, it was quite the journey, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And when he finally got to Antioch, he was blown away at what God had done there. Look at verse 23 who when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He was glad. When Barnabas arrived at Antioch, he was so excited that God had poured out his kindness on all of these people that he loved. He didn't come up grumbling about all the potential problems this might cause with the people down in Jerusalem. He didn't wonder who was legit and who wasn't. He didn't check to see who had been circumcised and who wasn't. And you know what? He was just excited that God was saving souls. And you know what? Whenever God is being good to others, it should bring joy to our hearts, isn't it? We should never be, oh, Well, the reason that church is being blessed, they're just, they're probably compromised. That's not really God's spirit. They're just, they're into just excitement. Like it's a sin to be excited about Jesus. I was listening to a teaching from a worship conference a couple years ago, and the title of it was called The Worship Wars. And I was talking about just how the difficulty over generations, this is always a struggle for the church. This is not something new that the older generation is always afraid. They don't want to lose something. We don't want to lose the things that God did in our lives. We don't want to leave behind these songs and the emotions and the feelings we had with those songs. And it was describing just the horrible nature of the church in the 1800s. He was reading this one pastor describing they're they're using organs in their services. Whenever God is being good, it should bring joy to my heart. I don't want to be a party pooper. I don't want to be somebody who's just always got the downer, the negative Nancy. If your name's Nancy, I apologize. I don't want to walk around and just go, well, yeah, you know, probably, you know, probably some sin going on. We'll find out. I want to rejoice in the things that God is doing. I want to rejoice when God is blessing another person. When I see them prospering and doing well in life, I don't want to look at my own life and say, well, how come that's not happening to me, God? How come I'm struggling or how come I'm going through this difficulty? I want to be excited. I want to be glad like Barnabas was. Well... It says, he also, he exhorted them. The word there is in the imperfect, which means he was continually exhorting them. Uh, he didn't stop is the idea. He was continually exhorting them. It says here, that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. That word "their purpose, means that which is planned in advance. It's the same word that's used of God's plans for us in Romans 8, 28, where it says there that he works all things together for the good of those who love God and who are the called according to his purposes. That's the same word. Now, let me ask you a question. How purposeful do you think God is with you and me? I don't imagine that God just shoots from the hip when it concerns you and me. He is very purposeful. And growth as a Christian requires spiritual discipline, a purposeful approach to our walk with God. Paul will later urge the Ephesian pastors to take heed unto themselves. He'll say the same exact thing to Timothy. Pay close attention to your walk Because if you and I don't pay close attention, our natural tendency is to drift. In Hebrews 2, verse 1, those beautiful words and yet sobering words where it says, therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed. The phrase there means to pay very close attention to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip or we should begin to drift away is what that means. My natural tendency is to drift. You ever been at the ocean? I remember as a kid all the time, we'd get in the ocean and mom and dad say, make sure you remember where the car is. Make sure you keep sight of the car. And of course, what would always happen? We'd be out playing in the ocean, goofing around. And then all of a sudden you look around, you go, where's the car? Where's the car? The last beach baptism I did, a bunch of the young people were goofing around. And at one point we had no clue where they were. They were way down the beach. We saw them come walking up after we're all looking for them. What happened? We didn't know. We didn't realize. What happens is, is the current takes you along, right? Slowly, gently, tugging on you little bit by little bit without you realizing it. That's our natural tendency if we do not pay close attention to our walk with the Lord. And so he urged them to be purposeful in doing what? That they would cleave unto the Lord. The word there means, it's it's a cool phrase. It means to continually continue with. (laughs) To continually continue with. It refers to persistence and loyalty. And they would need it considering the challenges of living in a wicked city like Antioch. let Let me ask you before we move on. Do you have a disciplined walk with the Lord? Do you pay close attention to your relationship with Jesus by having a purposeful plan to do so? My natural tendency is not to just gravitate towards the Bible. People say, oh, you're the pastor. You probably wake up just quoting verses. Oh, if I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. Good morning, dear, you know? No, that's not how it works. (laughs) There's an evil thing on my phone called a snooze button. That's usually my first tendency. We have to purpose. I'm going to spend time with the Lord today at this time. That's going to be that. And I understand, we don't want to get legalistic. It says to purpose in your heart, not just to purpose with your mind. It needs to be a heart thing, but it can't be something that we just say, well, it'll just happen. No, other things will just happen. I mean, do you purpose, do you not purpose? Well, I don't know, maybe you don't. So if you need counseling, I'll be available this week. But in your marriage, do you not purpose things? If you don't plan well for things, they don't just happen as Christmas is coming up, men. In a few weeks, now would be the time to get the card. Now would be the time to plan out if you already haven't what you're going to do or have some thoughts. I always try to jot down some thoughts in January of the things that Bev has mentioned, what she might want or what she would hope someday she might get, and just jot them down so that when Christmas comes around, I've got some ideas. And I'm not at the store sitting around going, what did you get your wife? What did you get in your wife? And then you're grabbing that last thing that all the husbands are reaching for because they forgot to get something for their bride. People spell love, T-I-M-E. It's how our kids spell love. It's how your wife spells love. Jesus wants our time too. And we have to make a purpose, purpose in our hearts to do it, to be disciplined. It doesn't just happen. And the reason that Barnabas did this, that he encouraged them, exhorted them to action, verse 24 is because of his character, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith and much people was added unto the Lord. He was a good man. I hope that's my testimony someday. So these are inspired words that God gave to Luke. And this is what God's opinion was of Barnabas. He was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. What does that mean? When well, I mean he was willing to take risks in following God's spirit, See, it would have been very easy for Barnabas to get up there, just similar like Peter, and to go, dear God, I am amongst a bunch of Gentiles. I am in trouble. (laughs) The word's going to get back to Jerusalem that I'm now the leader of this Gentile church up here. Oh, great. And yet he didn't. He was willing to take risks in following God's spirit. He was willing to step out in faith. For those of you who may not be familiar with Calvary Chapel, that's a part of who we are taking ventures of faith stepping out into the unknown trying something seeing whether god's in it or not when all my kids we were teaching them to walk and they would take that first stumbling step of faith and maybe they didn't reach for the right thing and then they fell down i didn't pick them up and give them a spanking and say come on you know better than that you see your mother walk all day long you see me walk all day long you got three brothers what's your problem you know no, no, hold on. No, 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 son, that's not how you do it. You do it like this. Let me take your hands. Why would our God be any different? You know what? You're a parent. You understand this. You're excited because they, oh, you know you know how it is. Oh, they're taking a step. Yeah, you know, you want to get the camera quick before you lose it. Even if it's a misstep, you're so excited that they finally had the courage to take it. I think the Lord is pleased when we step out in faith. What's the worst thing that happens? The Lord says, no, no, that's, that's not how you do it. Step over here. And there's no shame in that. I always admired Pastor Chuck because he would say, you know what, we'll step out in faith and see if it's the Lord. And if it's not the Lord, we'll step back, right? There's no shame in that. Barnabas, what an incredible guy. He was a unique person in the early church. He stood out in how he loved and embraced other believers regardless of their background. He was the guy who reached out to Saul, remember? I mean, this was the guy who had seen, he's the one that we're gonna see later in Acts, he reaches out to John Mark, the deserter, the wishy-washy Christian, the leader who couldn't seem to make up his mind or have the courage to do what needed to be done, the sellout, the quitter. He reaches out to him. He embraced other believers regardless of their background, regardless of their failures, and perhaps... The fact that God would forgive and restore a wayward Levite like him who'd forsaken his duties and moved to Cyprus, maybe that had so overwhelmed him that he knew God could and would rescue any sinner who repented. Maybe that framed his love. I don't know. But whatever the reason, his testimony is awesome. And the result is that even more people were saved. It says here, and much people was added unto the Lord. And so as this revival is going on, like Philip and Samaria, as this revival breaks out with Barnabas and Antioch, Barnabas realizes that with all these people, he can't disciple them adequately alone. I can't do this. So verse 25, then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. A church can only reasonably grow in connection with its mature believers if it's going to be any type of a healthy church. You know, Jesus took on 70 men, but really, he only invested in 12, right? I mean, this is God Almighty come in the flesh, and most of his time was spent with 12 guys, then really, he only took on 70 guys as far as how he would influence them and send them out. If you and I are going to reach our city, first off, it means we need to grow up, we need to mature. But secondly, we have to then pour into others. Who are you pouring into? I heard someone say once, every one of us should have a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Every one of us. You should have someone that you look up to, you admire that pours into you. You should have someone who's a peer, someone that has iron is sharpening iron, that kind of sparks fly sometimes, but you edify each other. And then you should have a Timothy, someone you're pouring into. Have you ever considered this fact? Jesus called each and every one of us to go out and make disciples. What's the requirement for you to go out and make disciples? Just find somebody who's not as far along as you are and pour into them. It's that simple. It's that simple. Who are you pouring into? It's a church-wide job, not a leadership job or a pastoral job. It's our job as a whole. And so Barnabas knows he can't do it alone. And so he goes to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Saul, everywhere Saul went, trouble came. He's having to flee the church in Damascus by a basket. And then they want to kill him in Jerusalem. Finally, the church is just thinking, you know what, we'll do Saul, we feel like God's called you to go back home to Tarsus and minister to the people there. Nice, quiet, Tarsus. But Barnabas brings the troublemaker because he's the perfect person for the job since Antioch will become the church that God intended full of both Gentiles and Jews. Paul had already had experience with that in Damascus. And so verse 26 says, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people, and the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. As a pastor, I often hear from Christians, we need to get back to the New Testament church. But the pattern of so many New Testament churches is flawed, much like our churches today. It's no different. But if there is one church that I'd model ours after, though, it would be Antioch. My prayer has been since day one that God would make the church that I pastored an Antioch type of church. Because as we'll see in Acts, this was a church who embraced every person, regardless of culture or background, and then defended that unity vehemently when false teachers tried to break it. It was a church that emphasized the teaching of God's word and a dependence upon the everyday leading of the Holy Spirit. It was a church that sent its people out to plant other churches and to reach the unreached with the gospel. It was a church that ministered to the Lord not just with or for the Lord. And isn't that the type of church we want to be? That's the church that I want to be a part of. Well, here we see the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. It says, and it came to pass that a whole year, they assembled themselves with the church and they taught much people. Saul spent 10 to 12 years in Tarsus before Barnabas came and found him. That's a long time between God's initial call and the time when it starts to be fulfilled. Don't be discouraged if God has laid something on your heart and you haven't seemed to come to pass yet. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. We are so oriented to the now in our culture, to the immediate. And we get discouraged so quickly, don't we? Maybe you don't, but I do. I get discouraged very quickly. All it takes is about 75 seconds on Facebook and immediately I think the whole church is going to hell. God's timing is perfect for you. It's perfect for me. How important it is that we stay the course, we be faithful, resting in the Lord. Well, now is time. And so here we see Barnabas and Paul, what do they do? What are these church gatherings focused on? It says they taught much people formal instruction in god's word paul would later charge timothy in second timothy verses 4 1 through 2 his very last commands that he would give to young timothy and he says this i charge you therefore before god and the lord jesus christ you shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom what's the first thing he charges him preach the word you're a pastor preach the word that's your job He instructs the young pastor in 1 Timothy 4.13 by saying, till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. He says, till I come, and I get there at the church, this is what I want your services to be about. This is what I want you to spend your time during your services doing. Reading God's word, explaining what it means, and exhorting the listeners to do what it says.
1: God is in charge of his church. He grows it in His way, using many different believers with many different backgrounds. He is the originator of true diversity. When He says He died for all, He means each and every one of us. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online